Hello, everyone, and welcome to On Trial, the podcast where we explore how to build your practice, trial tactics, and what can make or break your case. We're your hosts. I'm John Risvold. I'm Matt Heimlich. And today we're going to have a special episode. We're going to talk about one of Matt's tremendous verdicts in a nursing home case. Um, and I don't want to you know, give away too much right off the bat, but Matt, tell us a little bit about the case. Give me the 30,000 foot view of the case, and then we'll dive into the nitty gritty. Yeah, well, you know, since we're not trying cases these days, we figured this might might as well reflect on trials of, you know, times gone by and, you know, try to figure out what can be learned and what kinds of, you know, things there are to to glean from past successes and past failures too. You know, what you do different, uh, what worked, what didn't work. And the reason I like this case and one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this case today is because, you know, not necessarily the size of the verdict. I mean, it was a good verdict for the case. You know, it was, we got a $588,000 verdict uh, for an 84-year-old female nursing home resident who had a hip fracture and then a subsequent decline afterwards. Um, so the verdict as an was aside, good for let me, the case. I was going to say, as an aside, let me say, to get a $588,000 verdict for somebody of that age is tremendous. And so I don't want to downplay that. I'm going to give you credit where it's definitely due. Why do you think that it's the right size verdict for the case? Well, I thought it accurately reflected what the damages in the case were and what our proofs were. You know, we've had guests on our case, you know, I'm thinking Chris Norman, I'm thinking Pat Salvi, who have literally had nine-figure verdicts that they've either achieved in Pat's case, you know, as the primary attorney, or Chris has been part of a huge team, you know, to try a case of that size. Um, and, and this is not that. You know, in every case, you know, has its value. And our job as attorneys is to try to get full value of that case for our clients. And I thought, you know, this is a nursing home fall case. There's a lot of those out there. I'm sure a lot of people have a nursing home fall or a hospital fall case on their docket somewhere. Uh, not a lot of people have, you know, nine-figure birth injury cases on their docket. Not a lot of people have, you know, nine-figure uh, an airport shelter collapsing on a young woman and paralyzing her for the rest of her life cases on their docket. So I thought it's a little more relatable, a little bit more universally applicable. And, you know, not a lot of these cases actually go to trial, you know, especially in the nursing home context in Illinois, a lot of these cases resolve and this didn't for various reasons. So I got to, you know, try a couple things. I got to test a couple things and I'm hopeful that there's some things in here that, um, you know, everyone out there is listening can use in their practice. Awesome. So today we're going to talk about it's uh, the estate of Dolores Coda versus Providence Operations, Providence of Palos Heights. It was a case that you tried from uh, the end of May, the beginning of June 2019 uh, in Cook County with Judge Callahan, great judge. Um, great so judge. right off the bat, this is a nursing home fall. You've got an 84-year-old uh, decedent who, has, who falls and fractures her hip, subsequently you know, declines, you said. She ultimately passed away later from what appears to be complications from Alzheimer's. Is that right? That's right. Okay. How how did you file the case to begin with then? If you have a client like that who subsequently passes away, you know, removed from the incident that caused her decline? Yeah, there's a couple of, you know, strategic considerations that we needed to make when it came to how to present this case for trial. you know, I, I got involved in the case kind of late in the game. We were finishing up uh, doctor depositions uh, when I got involved in the case. So all the fact discovery had been done, all the nurses uh, and CNAs had been deposed. And, 
you know, we had, it was kind of time to retain our experts, figure out what kind of experts we were going to have and figure out how to shape their testimony, present our case in the best light. Um, and one of the things we decided to do was that we did not want to pursue a wrongful death case um, because, you know, the death was three years removed from the incident itself. So we kind of, the, the, the link between the, the fall, the fracture, and then the death, you know, there's a lot of a time, there's a big time gap there. You know, it would have been kind of tenuous. It would have been something that I thought maybe the defense would poke at. And, you know, we talked about credibility before. Once you lose it, it's gone. Um, so we didn't want to pursue that route. And in addition, uh, the defense had indicated that if we were going to pursue a wrongful death case, they would hire a medical expert. They didn't hire a medical expert in this case. And we thought that the benefit of us having a medical expert and them not having one, you know, outweighed any potential benefits that a wrongful death claim would have. So you said it earlier, and it's true, most nursing home cases, I would venture to guess, the overwhelming amount of them do not get tried. And you don't see a lot of nursing home verdicts in Illinois um, with, with regularity. I mean, there are certainly some, and there's a fair amount of them that there's not as many verdicts as there are cases by any means. Did you try to get this case resolved? What happened? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, shortly after completing the um, the F2 doctor's depositions, we actually sat down and mediated the case. And the mediation, you know, the ideally mediation is to bring the parties together. But every once in a while, you get that mediation where the whole thing just goes sideways. And the parties are, in fact, you know, solidified in their positions and they're farther apart than they were before the mediation even started. And unfortunately, that's what happened here. Um, there was what I presume to be miscommunications between the two sides. Uh, it really, it went nowhere and it also kind of ceased the settlement talk. So we basically went from mediation through experts and through trial without any real settlement discussions, which again is very unusual, especially in a case like this. Um, you know, nursing home case in the state of Illinois, as we talked about before, um, if you win a trial, you get fees and costs in addition to whatever the verdict is. So there's a lot of risk on the defense side, and there are a lot of reasons to want to talk about resolving the case. And, you know, for whatever reason, that didn't really happen here. So you have a mediation that goes south. You then have to go get experts or at least start working full time with your experts. Um, who were your experts? Why did you like them? Why did you pick them? Um, well, we ended up going with experience. Um, Dr. Goldberg, who was our medical expert, is someone I've worked with several times in the past. He was a medical director at numerous nursing homes in South Florida for, for decades. He knows the medicine cold. Uh, he's just he's a great expert. He's a very skilled testifier. And I've I've always enjoyed working with him. And I I was confident and I was also confident this case would settle. I told him, I said, Doc, this there's no way this case is going to trial. So, you know, don't worry about it. You know, if you can help us out, that would be great. And sure enough, you know, six months later I'm calling him and, you know, arranging his flight to come into Chicago uh, to testify. Um, and then Carol White also, you know, she is a legal nurse consultant. Uh, she has nursing home experience as well. You know, I like that she has the first, the firsthand direct uh, patient care experience that you need in addition to kind of understanding her role, um, you know, as a nursing expert uh, and testifying, because it's not an easy thing. And there's only, 
you know, you have to have a certain personality type to want to be a medical legal testifying expert. You know, it's not for everybody. You know, you meet nine out of 10 doctors and nine out of 10 nurses want nothing to do with this unless they have to. So it's, um, you know, it takes a certain personality type. Some people really uh, are good at it. They enjoy it. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a competition in a, in a way, you know, where they're putting their side against the other. And, you know, we had two really good experts who were, were tremendous for us at trial. Even if you find a, a doctor who likes to do it, that doesn't necessarily mean they're good at it. So it's good to hear that you found two that were good patient advocates, good advocates for the plaintiff, which I, again, I think is something that is becoming harder to find. They, on the other hand, they had an expert um, who was also a nurse, but they did not have a doctor. Uh, why not? And how did their nurse handle the, the entire burden? I mean, it was an interesting strategic decision on their part. Um, like I said before, they indicated to us that they were not planning on having a medical expert if we didn't claim wrongful death. Uh, they were going to fight the case on standard of care, and that's why they went with this expert. Um, you know, after having reviewed her report, um, we decided not to take her deposition. You know, in Illinois, we have uh, these expert disclosures and. In a deposition, you can expound upon your expert disclosures. You can disclose previously undisclosed opinions in the context of a deposition. You know, having reviewed her report, having reviewed her disclosure, we were comfortable with the opinion she was offering. We were comfortable we'd be able to cross-examine her and overcome her at trial. Uh, so as a strategic decision, we decided not to take her deposition. I know some attorneys take depositions of experts as a matter of course. Um, in my opinion, it's a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, it depends on the expert. It depends on their disclosure. It also depends if there are enough depositions of them out there, you know, among the trial lawyers where if you want impeachment testimony, you can get it. And, and based on all those factors, we decided um, that we didn't need to take her, her deposition and, you know, we were more than comfortable with them not having a medical expert. I think it's a great strategic choice. More and more, I'm finding that um, some defense lawyers really sort of half-ass their way through the disclosures because they have an expectation that we're going to take these depositions. And when I see a disclosure that someone has clearly not put a whole lot of effort into, you're stuck. I'm not going to depose your expert. I'm not going to give you an opportunity. I agree with you. It is a case-by-case, -case, and it really comes down to how hardworking is your opponent and how savvy is their expert, I think, as to whether or not you want to depose them. And I think that is a great strategic choice. Right. And so in this case, I'm not even saying their expert's closure was deficient. We just felt comfortable enough with its contents that we are going to be able to overcome in the trial. But yes, I, I have experienced that exact same thing with, with other defense attorneys where their expert their disclosures are general, they're not specific, they're lacking in detail. And it's a really, you know, a good strategic decision. I mean, to the point where you even have defense attorneys trying to depose their own experts, yeah. which I've seen a couple of times. And there's, there's no rule in Illinois against it. Um, so certain judges will allow it. But with the caveat that you can't elicit new opinions, all you can do is kind of expound upon the bases for the opinions that you've already disclosed. So it seems like, you know, kind of a pointless exercise, but you know, when you decide that you're not going to depose an expert, you know, a lot of alarms start going off, you know, back at the office. And then they realize, you know, oh, maybe I didn't include this. Maybe I need to clarify this, you know, so 
It, it's I, I, more and more, like you said, I th- there's not a need to take expert depositions. You have their disclosures. You have their report. I mean, how often are you really going to get them to flip at a dep? You know, probably not much. You're just going to attack the bases for their opinions, which you can do a trial anyway. So, you know, based on all right. those things, we felt like it was the right call. Sometimes you don't want to show your cards. You show your cross before trial. The other thing that I've seen, I don't want to get on a tangent about experts because we could probably talk about that all day long. But the other thing that I've seen is people taking depositions simply just to lock up the expert's opinion so they can't expound upon their opinions, which is just another thing to keep in the back of your head as a strategic choice as you're working with or considering deposing experts. So you get through experts. You've got two solid experts that you like. You've got a defense report that you think you can work with that gives you a lot of meat on the bone. What are you uh, worried about as you're approaching trial? What are your red flags? To be honest, my biggest surprise was that they didn't admit liability. You know, I think that is one of the most powerful tools for the defense. Um, You know, especially in a, a nursing home situation, nine times out of 10 in a nursing home case, all of the plaintiff's good facts are liability facts. And this was one of those cases, in my opinion. Um, we had what I thought was a strong, you know, a liability case that they weren't going to be able to overcome. And if they admit liability, and, it, and she was deceased, so there wasn't even an opportunity for punitive damages or aggravated liability or anything like that. So I thought from a strategic standpoint, what made the most sense to me you know, putting myself in the defense shoes would have been to admit liability and try the case on damages. Because, you know, all of a sudden the, the spotlight gets shifted. It's no longer on the conduct of the defendant. Now it's on the, the health condition of the plaintiff. You know, and as an 84-year-old, our, our client was in pretty good health, you know, but there are always those comorbid conditions, those chronic conditions. You know, she was in the nursing home for a, a reason. You know, she had medical issues that needed and physical issues that needed to be addressed. And, you know, had they made the liability, the focus probably would have been on those things. You know, but they chose not to do that. They they chose to contest it. And um, I I felt like that was a major concern because, you know, they could admit at any point during trial and all of a sudden the focus completely shifts. Um, the other thing I was really concerned about was them making a decent settlement offer, you know, at the courthouse steps. And, you know, we talked about that you can get fees and costs. I mean, there's an argument to be made if we got a verdict that was at or just above the settlement offer made before trial, you know, there'd be an argument against, you know, our fee petition at, at the end after we get a verdict, you know, they try to reduce it substantially. And, uh, that didn't happen, thankfully. Uh, again, like I said, the settlement talks kind of fell apart before then. So those are my two really major concerns, uh, you know, from a legal standpoint, walking into the courtroom. Um, sure. And, and th- there was one more thing. This is kind of interesting. You know, it's a fall case uh, when the uh, our client was being assisted. So it was witness. It was an assisted fall. Uh, the CNA that was actually assisting her during the time of the fall was never deposed. Uh, she was a former employee by the time suit was filed. Uh, she was no longer working. We couldn't find her. They couldn't find her. But she was listed as one of their witnesses that they would potentially call a trial in spite of all that. So, you know, obviously you're concerned about, you know, her just showing up 
you know, during the middle of the trial, saying some, you know, giving some damaging testimony against your client. You know, I, I thought that was kind of remote and that didn't end up happening, but that was in the back of the mind as well. Yeah. You never know when you get those disclosures, um, those final disclosures before trial and those witness lists are exchanged and you see a name where you think did not expect that name to be on the list. It does keep you up at night. That's for sure. Especially when it's somebody that is an eyewitness to the fall because she is part and parcel with the cause of the fall um, in this case. So that, that would definitely keep me up at night. Beyond that, were there any other evidentiary issues as you're headed into jury selection that you felt needed to be addressed and buttoned up before you felt confident picking a jury? Yeah, definitely. Um, a couple of the issues we had to address, and this is an Illinois specific issue, um, former employees of defendant, you know, hospitals or nursing homes are not considered adverse witnesses. So this becomes a problem, especially in the nursing home industry where there's a lot of turnover. So a lot of times, you know, everyone that you would want to call as a witness of the trial, by the time the trial rolls around two, three, four years after the incident, they've all left the facility. And now you want to, you know, cross-examine them as adverse witnesses and the court won't let you do it. So, you know, we moved to have them treated as adverse witnesses, you know, based on the case law and, you know, the way that Illinois law is as it stands, which I don't agree with, but it is the way it is. Um, they were not considered adverse witnesses, which is, you know, it changes your strategy a little bit. It changes how you treat the witness. Um, you know, I understood why the judge ruled the way he did. I mean, the law is the way it is. I, again, like I said before, I don't agree with it, but that was something we tried to overcome. We weren't able to. Um, there was also the issue of in Illinois, uh, facilities are required to report fall incidences to the Department of Public Health. Anytime there's a fall and an injury, they have to send a report about what happened. And then the Department of Public Health either chooses to investigate the circumstances of the fall or not. And, you know, that choice is totally at their discretion. And in this case, they, they didn't investigate the circumstances of our fall for one reason or another. And what we moved to do was to bar any mention of the whole reporting process because it didn't have any evidence on any of the proofs in this case. And it was unduly prejudicial. And the judge ultimately agreed with that. And I'm thankful for that because, you know, that kind of, it could create all kinds of confusion in the jury's mind about, you know, why didn't they, you know, if this was such an egregious breach of the standard of care, why would they not investigate this? And that you kind of go down a rabbit hole about, um, you know, the IDPH and all this other stuff that really doesn't matter. Um, but it, it could certainly confuse. And I was glad that the judge uh, had the foresight enough to bar that. Um, and then we talked about this actually in one of our more recent episodes. Uh, I ended up moving to uh, admit OBRA and the Illinois laws applicable to nursing homes as evidence of the standard of care. Um, you know, OBRA is a, a federal law that regulates nursing homes in order to participate in Medicare, you have to be in compliance with OBRA. There are many experts who will testify that OBRA sets forth minimums of standards of care that all nursing homes need to adhere to. And then Illinois has their own specific laws. There's parts of the Illinois Administrative Code. The Illinois has the Nursing Home Care Act that governs nursing homes, um, articulates resident rights and responsibilities, uh, sets forth requirements. 
And we moved to admit all of those into evidence um, as evidence of the standard of care, and the judge allowed us to do that. So again, using motions in limine before trial, both you know, as a sword and a shield to get what you want into evidence and exclude what you don't want uh, out of evidence. It's a good way to do it. And also, you know, when you have those issues that you know are rabbit holes, it's very easy for any juror, I think even a lawyer who would be on a jury, to get sidetracked with ancillary facts because they can be interesting and they can be, um, you know, sort of the aha TV lawyering kind of feel to them. So it's good to be using the sword as much as the shield when you're dealing with those pretrial issues. But once you get past them, in my opinion, the fun stuff really starts, you know, motions eliminate draft emotions, writing, anyone can attest is not my forte. It's the hardest part of the practice for me, but jury selection for most people is not their most fun thing. I love jury selection. How did you start off? What techniques did you use? What did you find that worked really well as you're picking a jury in Cook County? We had a very long and drawn out jury selection process for a bunch of reasons. It took more than a day, if I recall correctly, uh, to get 12 and two alternates. It was, and the judge was great. He let us talk. He let us ask questions. You know, at some point, you know, he, after like the second or third panel, he was you know, counsel, they've heard all these questions, you know, they understand they've been in the room this whole time, you don't need to keep re-asking them. But he kind of let us explore all the areas we wanted to explore. You know, we wanted to talk about, you know, their healthcare experiences, you know, their experiences with, you know, similar type injuries, um, any understanding they have about nursing homes, how they operate. Um, and it, interestingly enough, we ended up having a more than I'd say a proportionate percentage of healthcare workers on the jury. Uh, between the 14, you know, the 12 and the two alternates, we had two juror, two nurses, a therapist, and I think we had another one who was in school for some advanced healthcare degree. So we had a lot of healthcare professionals and soon-to-be professionals on the on the jury. And, you know, a lot of, you know, the general wisdom among, you know, plaintiffs, attorneys might be to get those people off. You know, they right. know too much, they're going to protect their own. And in our case, we had a we had really great, you know, I, and I understand why they would think that way. But in my in my opinion, if you have a good meritus case and you have clear violations of standard of care, you know, these people are going to end up going to bat for you. And when we talked to them after the trial was all said and done, the therapist in the particular was said, I, I never forget my falls. You know, when people fall, it, it stays with me, you know, I, and I do everything I can to learn why it happened so that it never happens again. Cause that stays with you. You don't, you don't just forget about uh, something like that. And I think that that sentiment kind of resonated throughout uh, the nurses and other healthcare people. And I, I think they ended up being, you know, I, I assume, again, we're not in the room, but some of, some of the most, uh, some of the jurors that we really got on our side and really went to bat for our client. Yeah, that's great. Sometimes you just have to not be afraid of those experts on your panel, because if you have the case like you had here and you can show them, they will do the right thing. Jurors want to do the right thing. And I think a lot of plaintiff's lawyers are scared. Oh, they know 
too much or they'll protect their own. That, that's especially common in, in med mal cases and I'm sure in nursing home cases. Um, but there are exceptions to every rule, right? And if you find good people who you know can do the right thing through jury selection, that can be a very powerful, powerful tool, I'm sure. Um, once this uh, day and a half is over, you finally get a panel. You got your 12 and two alternates. Um, well, before I start, what did your panel look like? Was it, uh, you know, older, younger, pretty diverse, pretty plain? What do you think? I would say it tended towards being younger and more diverse. And, you know, some of it's just who you get that day, you know, but it turned out for, for us in this case that those jurors ended up, you know, responding to the questions that we we're asking in a more positive way. They were coming into it with, you know, less preconceptions than some of maybe the older jurors that were on the veneer. And our, our jury, while it, you know, there were certainly were older people on it, I would say um, on average it was, it was younger and we had a nice mix of people from all different backgrounds. It was a really, it, it was a really kind of interesting group of people. Um, and they, they all seem to get on well together. Like I found out, for, I, I got to tell you, they talked with us for, I'd say an hour, That's maybe awesome. a little over an hour after the trial was over. And it That's was awesome. invaluable. It was absolutely invaluable hearing them, you know, want to talk to us, sharing their opinions, sharing, you know, what made a difference to them. And we, we just, we, you know, sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes, you know, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. And we happen to have a great group that day. It's always better to be lucky than good, right? Uh, every time. Every time. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. I had a really bad loss at trial uh, three years ago. And none of the jurors spoke to us. They were given the opportunity to, and it's just heads down, walk out the room, don't want to talk. And then I had a trial last November, the last trial I tried before the pandemic that we won. And the same deal. They talked to us for an hour. The, the foreman invited me out for a beer afterwards. I mean, it was incredible. And you learned so much about how they saw the case and what you could do better or what you could have done differently, um, which is incredibly invaluable. So Speaking of the foreman, good- we had a... We had an interesting experience with our who the person who turned out to be our foreman. About midway through the trial, it wasn't that long. It was probably five, six days uh, of trial. Um, about day two or three, she comes and she tells the judge that she's sick. You know, she ended up, I think she vomited at some point during the day. Um, and, and she she said, no, it's food poison. And, you know, we offered her the opportunity to leave. You know, we don't want to hold her there, although – you know, we would have preferred her to stay, obviously, but at some point, you know, you're not feeling well, you need to go. Um, and she said, no, no, no. Like, you know, she committed to the process. You know, she wants to be there. She wants to see this thing through. And she ended up being the foreman. And I am Great. so glad that she stayed because, you know, when she stood up as the foreman, hey, she was one of those jurors. I, I, I saw some signs throughout the trial, you know, that in my opinion, I, I thought she was going to be, you know, on our side at the end of the day. And when she stood up, you know, I was, I, I could, first of all, I was, I was like, well, thank, thankfully we didn't let her go. I mean, that would, yeah. that would have been a problem, but uh, you know, you don't, you don't know what she's going to say, you know, when, when she stands up and I thought if we lost her, you know, <laughs> we, we're not doing our jobs. Uh, so thankfully it all, it all worked out that time. The most nerve wracking, what, 60 seconds from when the jury 
uh, hands it ever hands it over to the judge and then gets it back and and you find out how everything went down. It is a nerve wracking uh, your whole life flashes before your eyes kind of moment, right? Yes, it does. Um, but before we can get to the 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 end, we got to start at the beginning. You're stepping up to the plate for opening statement. How do you tell this story in a way that keeps the jury interested from the get go? Because you have to have them. In my opinion, you have to have them captivated through jury selection and opening statement for them to care at all about everything that comes next. Right. And, and looking back um, on my performance doing opening, you know, I, I looked back, the substance was good. What I said was good. I, I liked the way I, I, I sequenced it. I thought it all made sense. I thought it made, you know, a relatively interesting opening. Um, but, the style in which I gave the opening and the energy which I gave to the opening was awful. I, I was not giving it the energy that it needed that day. Um, I remember sitting down feeling like I, I, I did the job, I did the work, but I, I was just, I was not happy with the way that I delivered it. Um, but as far as the substance went, I, I spent a lot of time educating about, the role of the nursing home, about what it is, about what it does, about the the different jobs within the nursing home and how it all works together, especially when it comes to the issue of patient safety. You know, because our client, she's elderly, she's a fall risk. And again, most of the patients in the nursing home are. So this isn't a unique situation to her. You know, this is something that they have to deal with every day. And there are systems in place to make sure that people stay safe within the nursing home, despite these obvious and known risks. And then, you know, I talked about her, her story, her medical history and our, and our negligence theory was about as simple as it gets. She had a plan of care to keep her safe. And that plan of care included when she needed to get up to ambulate, she needed to use a wheelchair and she needed limited assistance with that. You know, meaning she could wheel herself around, but if she was going to go a distance, you know, she needed someone to help her. But the wheelchair was a non-optional part of all that. And, you know, it's, it's clear. It's black and white. It was in her chart. It was in effect on the date of the fall. You know, from our perspective, this is, a, this is about as simple as it gets. And then when it comes to the circumstances of the fall, there were three different versions Um there was one that was documented, a different one in the investigation, and then a third one that was told to the director of nursing after the fact. And the one commonality between all of them was they didn't use the wheelchair. So, you know, one was, you know, she had a gate belt on and the walker in front of her and they're assisting her that way. One, another one that just the gate belt. And then a third, the gate belt was on, but it wasn't being used. They were kind of holding the, the CNA was walking backwards, holding her hands, assisting her from the bed to the toilet when the fall occurred. So from our perspective, it didn't really matter because all of them are problematic. You know, none of them meet what this woman's needs were. So that was, I, I focused a lot on that. Um, there was also an issue of them failing to recognize the injury after her fall, you know, which is a nice, you know, way to hammer home the fact that there are systemic issues at this facility. It's not just this one nurse or this one CNA who's not doing their job. You know, it's multiple people who are responsible for her 
who are all not really being observant, who all aren't caring about what their job duties and responsibilities are. You know, and then it went through her damages. You know, she had she fell, she broke her hip, she had the corrective surgery, she went to a she had the rehab, and then you know she never really got better. You know, that kind of precipitated a decline in her condition. You know, that led her ultimately uh, to get moved home, then put on hospice, and then the decline from there. And then you obviously got to address the defenses. You know, because you can't, th- there's two sides to every story. And, you know, believe it or not, you may not agree with the defense's side, but they have one and it needs to be addressed. You know, so it was more about, you know, that they met the standard of care, that those, some of those versions were appropriate for her, despite what the, the client care guide said, you know, about un- the fall being unpreventable or her being, um, her behavior being a contributing factor towards the fall. And then the argument for damage is that the decline was unavoidable because she had progressive dementia, you know, it's a disease that gets worse over time, not better, you know, all those things. So I tried to address all of those during the opening. Like I said, I, I, I want to redo, I think I could have done better, but uh, you know, I, I'm not going to argue with the results. So. I understand. I never like reading my transcripts after the fact, it's never a pleasant experience, but it sounds like he covered the harms and the losses really well and did something that I absolutely love, which is you're right. You have to address the defenses of the case, but it benefits you. Like, don't be afraid of them. Tackle them head on because once the jury hears them and you get an opportunity, even in opening, even though it's not argument to somewhat discredit them or frame them in a way that makes it sound like they're preposterous or sound like they're just flat out wrong when the defense attorney gets up to give his or her opening statement, they're going to be in a bind because the jury is going to already be a little bit distrustful of what they say and is already going to have heard their defenses. And I don't know that they're necessarily going to, to find them persuasive at that point. So I really like that as a substantive uh, way to handle it. That's really, really smart. Right. In addition with nursing home cases in particular, I find that it is absolutely essential to educate about what the nursing home is and what they do, because there's a lot of misconceptions out out there about what is required of nursing homes. Some people think they're more like hospitals. Some people think they're more like, you know, an assisted living type facility that provides minimal services. So it's really important to kind of clearly articulate what is expected of the nursing home and the ways in which they failed to meet those expectations. And, and again, do it before the defense gets up and tries to, you know, articulate their version of the story. So hopefully by the time they at least stand up to do their opening, you know, they, they have a clear frame, you know, about what is expected. And that whole educational process, in my mind, you know, reinforced by your experts, I feel like it really, in this case in particular, really drove home the verdict and drove home the liability aspect of the case. And so you've got all the story out you've got to prove it now. You've told the jury what the evidence is going to be. Now you got to actually show them the evidence. Uh, Walk me through some of the highlights of the trial. Give me sort of the sports center top plays version of, of how you presented witnesses and evidence. Yeah. The the highlight for me was uh, the client's husband, 90 years old, testified in the case. What a guy. Just amazing. I love it. The greatest, you know, he, he said, I mean, it almost didn't matter what he said. He clearly, they've been married for like 60 years. 
you know, he clearly loved her as much as anybody could love anybody else. And just watching her decline in such a way firsthand, you know, him becoming, you know, not only a husband, but, you know, her caregiver at his age, you know, was a, it was a, it was a sad thing for him. And he, he, he could not have given a better testimony. We had him up there for like, you know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, just to, just to give his two cents, you know, and he's 90 years old. The fact that he came to trial law is unbelievable, hey. but he was, he was just great guy. One of a kind, you know, cut from a different cloth. They just, they, they don't make him like that anymore. He was, he was tremendous. Um, the, the other really kind of highlight testimony for me was the director of nursing kind of gave us liability on the stand. You know, she admitted that none of the versions complied with the care guide and that this whole walking backwards, holding your hands maneuver was improper. And they, they shouldn't be relying on her to bear her own weight and, you know, do that under the circumstances. And, you know, it was as a visual, uh, Mike Satina, the partner of my firm and I who were trying the case, we actually recreated the assistance level for the jury. So Mike and I we were holding hands and walking backwards and, you know, we, I got a gate belt on and it, it was just, it showed kind of the absurdity of the situation. And it really drove home, you know, what are these people thinking? Why, why did they think this was okay? You know, this is nowhere to be found anywhere as an appropriate method of transfer for her. The CNA just kind of went rogue. You know, so it really kind of drove that home. And then, you know, their defense nurse, uh, nursing expert came in and tried to, you know, clean it all up and say everything was fine. And he, Mike ended up doing it again. He borrowed our elderly 90-year-old client's walker and, and like, walked forward with the hands outstretched with the gate belt on, you know, because th th they're saying the walker and the gate belt were there. But if they're holding hands, neither of them are being used appropriately. Right. So it's like, what's the point of a tool if you don't use it? And that became kind of a theme at closing. You know, they're trying to cover themselves by saying the tools were there, but you're not using them. So it yeah, doesn't recreating matter. That. Recreating it, that is a really great idea. It's a really great way to illustrate to the jury. I've seen that done in a lot of trials very effectively. It sounds like, obviously, this was a very effective use of the recreation because you're able to illustrate the violations of the standard of care right in front of their eyes. Yeah, it really did. And I felt like, you know, that really kind of turned the tide, you know, when you have the defense nursing expert disagreeing with the director of nursing of the facility they're supposedly advocating for, you know, I mean, it's the, the case, the liability aspect is done at that point. So beyond basically destroying their expert with their own director of nursing. Um, any other highlights from the presentation of evidence that you thought really drove home the liability points or even the damages points that got you to uh, this substantial verdict? Sure. We, th there was a hearsay issue because obviously the, the CNA, as we discussed, was not testifying at the trial. So there were some issues where she supposedly told the director of nursing a version of the events. Um, we objected to it as hearsay. And, you know, the, it was clear that the defense was relying on this evidence as a major part of their liability case. And, 
you know, it's basically textbook hearsay. And, and the judge, you know, held firm. You know, the defense was pretty adamant, you know, that this that this would be highly prejudicial to them to disallow this evidence, that, you know, this had been relied upon in other areas of the case. Um, but allowing that testimony in itself, you know, the judge held firm, uh, prevented them from substantiating some of their theories. And that kind of really, you know, put a nice little bow on liability for us. Um, and then when it came to damages, Dr. Goldberg, you know, he linked it all together. You know, it's, I, I talked with Pat Salvi, you know, several episodes ago about having those nice little phrases that the juries can kind of take back to the room with them. And the one that he came up with was, you know, she would have, our client would have these incidents, you know, they would be some setbacks, but there'd always be a bounce back. And that was kind of her pattern. You know, she would improve, there'd be a setback, then there'd be a bounce back, then something else would happen, setback, bounce back. But from this, from this fracture, this fallen fracture, there was a setback, but there was no bounce back. It kind of precipitated this whole downward uh, trajectory. And, you know, it kind of really drove home the damages aspect of the case because her condition before that, you know, it's not like nothing happened, but she was able to recover. She had that vitality. She had that strength. And, but at the end of the day, you know, the, a person can only take so much. And this ended up kind of overwhelming her and, and pushing her, you know, on that downward trajectory. I like that as a theme. Themes are very, very important. It's something that uh, Pat Salvi and his firm does very well. They frame cases really well. They create themes that are really smart that stick in a jury's head because we have to understand these jurors are not trained in what we're doing. And then they have to distill all this information down to whatever form they can apply to the jury instructions while they're deliberating. And they're not going to remember every single detail that we put out in evidence. They're just not um, as much as we wish they would. And they're going to take notes and they're going to do a good job, but um, they're not going to remember every detail, just like we might not remember every detail. So themes like that are really, really important. How did you carry that evidence and those themes into the close to really drive it home before the case goes to the jury. Yeah. So when it comes to closing, looking back on it, you know, I'm a, again, grading myself, always being my, my biggest critic, better style. Okay. On substance, but I, I, it got the job done. I tried to keep it simple, try to keep it direct and really hammer home our case as well as, you know, kind of give the defense nothing to talk about. That was kind of my main goal going up there was, you know, our case is pretty simple. We've been there for five, six days, but at the end of the day, this is a simple case. You know, that's obviously good for the plaintiff. The plaintiff usually wins, you know, the A plus B equals C cases. And that's what, in my mind, I felt like this was. You know, they didn't follow the plan of care and that failure led to the harm. You know, I talked about, you know, the whole broken promises theme. You know, when you admit someone to a facility, it's not a decision that's taken lightly. You end up, you know, handing over care of a loved one uh, to a, a nursing home staff, you're placing your trust in their hands and they took that trust and broke it. You know, they didn't know and didn't take steps to know their patient, didn't know what she needed to keep them, to keep her safe. And because of that, she ended up having this injury and that kind of sent her on this downward spiral like we talked about. And then after that, after kind of setting out, you know, a, a pretty clear vision of what the case is about, I just kind of went out and tried to gut their defenses as best I could. 
you know, there was this during the hand holding process, like I discussed, there was a, an indication that she took her hands away, you know, and I talked about that and said, they shouldn't be relying on the hands to support anyway. That's not what her care plan requires. That's not what reasonably careful nurses or CNAs do. You know, they understand their patients' needs and they're acting accordingly. And then I had to address kind of the, the argument platitudes that the defense put forth. You know, falls can happen without negligence. Yes, in, in a vacuum, that's true. You know, but in this case, it's kind of, it's meaningless. And what they're trying to do is have you ignore the evidence in the case and just focus on this meaningless platitude. You know, that has nothing to do with anything that occurred in the case. You know, it's not specific and you shouldn't consider it. They also talked about the fall being unpreventable. And that's when I went into a decision tree. You know, you've seen those where you talk about all of the decisions that someone makes within a matter of seconds that leads to an ultimate injury. You know, obviously car crash cases, that happens a lot. Um, I think it's definitely applicable in fall cases. And I went through like five, six, seven, eight decisions that the CNA made in the moments leading up to the fall that ultimately led to it. You know, had they made better choices, you know, they, this could have been prevented. And, you know, ultimately landing on that this fall was a product of poor choices of the CNA not following the care plan, not doing what she was supposed to do. And I, I, that's one of my favorite things to do. I find it's a really effective argument in closing. You know, because they try, a lot of times the defense tries to land on accidents happen. This was an accident, you know, but it's not. If you really think about it, if you really turn your brain on and analyze things critically, this is a product of choices. And the choices that they made were bad. And had they made better choices, this wouldn't have happened at all. Yeah, that's great. You have to be able to reframe their defenses and use them against them. And that's an awesome, awesome way to do it. Um, how did you use the jury instructions? if you did in closing, because we have some, some very good nursing home jury instructions in Illinois that I think are very helpful uh, to plaintiff's lawyers in particular. Yeah, we, we do. The, the nursing home instructions in Illinois are, sp- are very specific, you know, and I tried to frame a lot of my questions and a lot of the testimony to fit exactly with the language of the instruction uh, about neglect in particular. And, you know, the, the, and also, for, but for me, the biggest issue was proximate cause and the damages. Again, I thought by the end of the trial, I thought the liability case was pretty solid. I wasn't really focused on that. I was more focused on proximate cause and damages. I was more thinking about them just kind of writing off or decline to Alzheimer's, to age, and just, you know, kind of not giving her the, the damages that, um, that she deserved as a result of the harm. And what we ended up doing, you know, I, I went through the proximate cause instruction. We got the long form, argued for it, got it. Um, and then what I ended up doing is using a visual, <clears throat> which I love, which I stole from Ed Walsh, one of the partners over here. I saw him use it at trial. I thought it was brilliant. Um, and it's a circle of causation. It's literally a circle that I put up and showed to the jury. And within the circle were all the things that led to her decline you know, the Alzheimer's, you know, prior injuries, prior medical conditions. And I put, you know, the fall and fracture right in there in the middle. And I said, what you need to determine is that this was a cause or contributing factor to her decline in death. You know, it doesn't need to be the only one, but it needs to be in there. If you think it fits there, 
then you need to award full damages for the harm that it caused. And at this point, you know, we had unrefuted testimony from Dr. Goldberg who said exactly that. And so it's almost like they had no choice, you know, given the circumstances, but that circle of causation thing, it's simple, it's brilliant, it's effective. Um, I, I recommend that you use it because it really, you know, and, and one of the things when we talked to the jury afterwards, they said, you know, I was really having a hard time with that proximate cause issue. And that, that circle of causation, it really hammered it home for me. It made it very digestible for people. So I, I can't recommend it enough. And I really think it helped get us, you know, the damages award that our client deserved. That's a genius idea. I really like that. That's uh, especially, again, anything you can use to illustrate to the jury complex terms in simple form. That's just awesome. Yeah. Um, so the verdict. That, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Say, the other thing that I jury instruction issue that uh, was interesting, and, I, and I'm not sure what I would do again. Um, we ended up using professional responsibility instruction about the conduct of the CNA. You know, we ended up having, you know, what a reasonably careful CNA would do under the same or similar circumstances, as opposed to an ordinary care type instruction. And I, I was going back and forth about it the whole time. And because CNAs, they're not licensed professionals. They're not licensed by the state of Illinois. It's just a certificate. Um, so I wasn't sure whether or not it was applicable what, and or whether it was a good idea to kind of hold them raise, elevate their profession up to something that, you know, it may not be. But at the end, I decided that I thought it was more appropriate because of the level of responsibilities that CNAs have in nursing homes for patient care and patient safety is astounding to those who don't understand how nursing homes work. And I thought that raising their level of conduct up to that of a licensed professional, at least as for a jury instruction, you know, made it made a lot of sense because, you know, the ordinary care instruction doesn't really take into account what a, a professional, you know, someone doing their job knew or should have known. And in this case, there was plenty of evidence, plenty of testimony that had the CNA be doing their job as a reasonably careful CNA, they knew or should have known that this transfer was inappropriate. So how did the verdict, how did the verdict shake out? So we asked for, you know, the past medicals were $63,000. Um, you know, that's the surgery. And that's basically it. We didn't, you know, put into evidence any additional nursing home care. She was at nursing home before. She was at nursing home after. And then outside of that, it was all non-economic. It was pain and suffering, loss of a normal life, and then a loss of consortium claim for the husband. And what I ended up doing is, you know, I gave a couple ranges on pain and suffering and loss of a normal life. Um, I, I, what I like to do is I don't like to put the totals on the form. I just like to itemize each element of damage and just say, you know, think about it, talk about it, and it adds up to what it adds up to. You know, don't worry about this number. Don't worry about these individual elements of damage and that whatever it adds up to that's the verdict you know don't work backwards don't start at the bottom and then right figure it out from there and so we ended up asking the range was like 600 and something thousand to 700 and something thousand and they gave us you know pretty close to the bottom of our ask which was you know i, I thought great and i thought you know really reflected well on us you know proving our damages case and arguing for it effectively did you think, was there a consideration about just waiving the meds, not bringing them in? 
there's a lot of talk about how, you know, small, smaller meds and 63 grand is not a small amount of money, but it is when you're asking for $700,000 in terms of a verdict and it can anchor you down. Did that cross your mind or how'd you handle that? It did, but in a, in this case, we thought that the evidence was such that we weren't going to be anchored. You know, it's a, it's a case by case situation. I thought, you know, like, you know, Pat in his episode talked about, you know, he got a $3 million verdict on a case with like, you know, 40 grand in medical. I mean, this right. is not that case. Um, I, I didn't think that the proportions were so out of whack that, you know, we were going to be anchored by that. Um, and, and like I said, we had uncontested medical testimony from Dr. Goldberg that I thought really brought it home. And, you know, given what we had and there wasn't much contesting the, the, the past medical, it wasn't really a fight. So it, it, to me, it seemed like it would have been, you know, leaving a, a line item off the verdict form had we just waived it. That makes sense. So the case goes to the jury. They go back to deliberate. And now comes the worst part of the trial where you sit and you wait and you pace and you try to eat, but you can't, and you, you know, freak out inside and out. Um, there's a lot of superstition and there's a lot of like, you know, theories about jury comes back quickly. It's a defense verdict. If they take longer to deliberate, it's because they're trying to work out a complicated issue or they're having a debate about how much money to give you or whatever else. What happened here? So in this case, you know, uh, Mike and I go back to our Chicago office, which is right across the street from the courthouse. It's about lunchtime, but we just, you know, we sit around, we you snack on some pretzels and we just sit by the phone. And, you know, 30, 45 minutes later, he says, you know what? You know, I don't think this would be a bad case if it came back quick. You know, this might be one of the ones where it might be okay. No sooner had he finished uttering those words, the phone rings. It's the clerk. They have a verdict. We need to get back to the courthouse right now. And the jury's only been out, like I said, like an hour, give or take. And so I am just stressed out. I am pacing the hallways. I am not talking to anybody. I am just in my own head completely because I'm thinking, you know, the superstition is or the, the, the common knowledge, and for good reason, is that quick verdicts are defense verdicts. And so I'm thinking we lost and I can't figure out how. So I'm just... I'm just beside myself and we end up, I, I run into a friend of mine. I, I told him, you know, the, the jury just came back and told him to stick around. And he's like, I've never, I talked to him afterwards. He's like, I've never seen you like that. You know, I'm usually a pretty even keeled. I was not even keeled. I was, I was all over the place. So we sit down, you know, the foreman reads the verdict. You know, I, I'm just, you know, elated. The client is, is extremely happy. You know, it was, it was a really nice moment. And, uh, but I, I got to tell you, I, I thought we lost for sure. Jury coming back that quick. I don't know how they could have done the math in, in that amount of time. But we talked to them afterwards. Like I said, they were very open. They basically said they went back in the room. They all sat down and they did show hands, you know, on liability, who's for the plaintiff and everyone put their hands up. So they spent the rest of the time talking about damages. They came to the decision and then they ordered lunch, you know, like any, any good jury will. Yeah. Smart jurors. If you're going to get a free lunch on the County, you get a free lunch on the County. That's right. That's Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So after 
the trial. You've got your verdict. Um, the work's not done. We know when you have a verdict, you got to go protect the verdict and everything else. But with a nursing home case in Illinois, because the CARE Act is the way that it is, there's work to be done to get paid. Uh, talk to me about your fee petition, the process, and and how it went. Sure. So, you know, after the verdict, the verdict all goes to the client. That's the client's verdict, which is great. It's the, the best thing about doing nursing home cases is all that money goes to the client. So we need the petition to court for our fees and costs because that's supposed to come from the defendant. And so, you know, about you know, a couple of weeks after the verdict, I file my fee petition. You know, I cite to the act. I you know, cite all the relevant case law. And I asked for, and that's, it's another thing. You also need to choose how you're going to present your fee petition. And that is based on a lot of things. It's based on the verdict. And it's because you can either go with the lodestar calculation, which is, you know, reasonable hourly rate times how many hours you worked, or you can ask for a contingency fee you know, one third of the verdict, basically. So we ended up going with the contingency fee, um, basically because we had no choice. We didn't keep contemporaneous track of our time. We would have had to recreate timesheets whole cloth after the verdict, which the court would obviously frown upon. Um, they would have been, obviously, just holes would have been poked through by the defense. It would have created a mess. So we decided in an effort to keep it clean, we would just do one third of the verdict. And this is it was an interesting time in Illinois nursing home law because um, friend of the pod, Margaret Battersby Black's, you know, four plus million dollar nursing home uh, appeal uh, had come down, but was yet to be published. Uh, oh. They'd moved to publish it and it was still in the unpublished phase. And I, I asked the court to take notice of the fact that the motion of the publication had been granted. And the judge ended up continuing the case and the fee petition until after that case was formally published so he could rely upon it as case law. And then ultimately agreed that a one-third fee, you know, was reasonable under the circumstances and, and gave us, you know, basically, I'd say 90% of the costs that we asked for and petitioned the court for. So it was a good result. It, it was a little bit, you know, circuitous, but we ended up getting there and, uh, it's, it's really, and, and that, but that I got to say, you know, for people and I, I know myself, I've, I've been doing this all my nursing home cases, keep track of your time. I know we're not defense attorneys. We don't bill by the hour. It is worth it. 100% to keep track of your time on a nursing home case because the case law is such that as long as the fee is reasonable, that's what you get. It doesn't have to be in proportion to the verdict. Uh, there's an Illinois case where someone got a very, very small verdict. It was like fifteen, twenty thousand dollars, but they took the case all the way to trial and petitioned the court for like eighty-seven thousand dollars in attorney's fees and got it. So keep track of your time; it's worth it. It'll benefit you in the end. Uh, if I had been involved from the beginning, I might have, you know, done that throughout the course of this case. But uh, that was that was way gone by the time I got involved. I agree. It's the one vestige of my days as a defense lawyer that I hold on to is any nursing home case that we handle in our office. I am religious about keeping track of time for that exact reason. Um, you know, many of these don't get tried, but in the event that it does, you can't, uh, you know, recreate the wheel in that sense. 
you have to have been keeping track the entire time. So um, that's a, that's a great point. And again, um, another one, I think you, we really need to keep in mind as we're litigating these cases. Um, so fantastic. I mean, really cool to be able to talk to you about this tremendous verdict. Anything else that you uh, took from the verdict or took from the trial that you know uh, changed the game a little bit for you in your practice, that you know you're going to try this or do that that we haven't talked about? I mean, I as far as presenting my arguments and opening, I, I, I was very critical of myself. I stand by my criticism. I was not great. Uh, I, I tried to overdo it on substance. I, I, I tried to basically write it out like commit it to memory or have it in front of me and just kind of present it that way. You know, I need to allow myself the room to, you know, be natural, to, to be, you know, energetic and not be bound to words because, you know, as lawyers, words are always very important to us. Right. You know, I always want to try to say the right thing. I don't want to overstate my case. I don't want to understate my case. You know, I'm always trying to present things in the best way possible, but that can't always happen in trial. You know, you need to be able to, you know, just, you need to have enough confidence and enough, you know, wherewithal to, you know, understand what your case is about and just trust your gut instincts and go for it. And I think the jury ends up, end up responding to that energy almost as much as if you, you know, just read the perfect words off of a piece of paper. So that's, that's kind of my big takeaway personally, Um, style wise. I mean, substantively, I mean, I, the, the damages case, I, I thought I ended up using some of the rep, the reptile methods for damages, um, you know, about exactly. isolation, about dependency, you know, and, and I kind of hammered those as themes to support our damages case. And I really thought that they, they really helped. Uh, you know, I, you know, I'm a big believer in kind of taking what works for you from all the different resources that we have out there. You know, you and I have talked about different books that we like from different lawyers, you know, Mitnick, Rowley, uh, you know, the reptile, all those things, you know, take what works for you, take what feels natural for you and fits the case. And, and I thought, cause that was my biggest concern was arguing damages. And I thought those kind of reptilian principles and arguing those really kind of hammered home the point to the jury And, you know, with elderly people with nursing home cases, I feel like that's something, you know, that really resonates with people and uh, something that I would certainly, there's something that I definitely thought worked. Yeah. Two of the things you said are two things that I try to remind myself of often is that every trial win or lose is an opportunity to get better at doing this. Um, And especially if we win, it's easy to win a trial and, and think that you're awesome at this. And so to have the self-awareness to be able to go back to the transcripts and go back to what you did and figure out how you can get better is such a benefit to your clients going forward. Um, It's such a huge and important thing. And the other thing that I have to remind myself of is, yeah, I want to be a trial lawyer like you or Pat Salvi or Nick Rowley or whomever, um, Jerry Spence, but I can only be me and I have to be the best me I can be by using these techniques in the way that they work for me. And if I do it in an inauthentic way, jury's going to see right through it. They're not going to rely on me. I'm not going to have credibility because I'm trying to be something that I'm not. And so you're right. You have to figure out the right way that these puzzle pieces work for you because they work if you make them work. Right. 
And one other thing I wanted to touch on is that I know the jurors had no basis for comparison, really, because all of them, this was the first time on their on a jury. But the fact that defense counsel and us, we got along, there wasn't a lot of arguing. There wasn't a lot of objecting. Most of the business was handled behind closed doors and didn't take a long time. There weren't a lot of interruptions to the trial to try to keep things moving. I think that really appreciated. They really appreciated that. I know I appreciated it. You know, the professionalism from defense counsel was incredible. Um, that was one thing I came away from them uh, personally was, you know, they, they truly respected the law, respected the process. And we, you know, you end up reciprocating, you know, right. And when you create an environment where, you know, we have a legitimate disagreement about what happened and the facts and the value, uh, but it didn't become nasty, unprofessional, unnecessarily confrontational. Um, and I, I think, I know the judge really appreciated it. And I think the jury did too. And ultimately, I think that inures to our benefit to have yeah. a, as much of a smooth process of trial as possible. I mean, sometimes it can't be helped, but, you know, I, I think it's to our benefit to try to foster that environment, you know, to the extent possible and make trials move faster, smoother, you know, less interruptions. All that stuff, I, I think, is to our benefit and ultimately to our client's benefit. I agree. I agree. It's also a small community. It's a small legal community. There's what, 11 million people in Chicago, but it's a small legal community and you can easily get a reputation for being disagreeable and a jerk and somebody who's not a professional um, just because you're taking your adversarial process too far. It's an adversarial confrontational process. It's the way it's designed. It's the way it's set up, but you don't have to um, be a jerk about it. And I think that to your point, if the jury sees that, they're going to blame everybody, but you're the only one that has a burden and you're the only one that's asking for money. So at the end of the day, if they blame everyone, you lose. And if you can be the most professional person in the courtroom, even in the face of absolute jerks, which thankfully it sounds like you had some very good defense lawyers on the other side who were very professional. And you know, most of the time that's what we run into. And most of the time that's who we try to be uh, as plaintiff's lawyers and, and when we're encountering defense lawyers, but there are jerks in our profession, like there are in every profession. And as long as you're just being the, the ultimate consummate professional, I think that the jury sees that and you'll win out uh, in that sort of realm. Absolutely. With that, with that, I think we're going to wrap up for the week. We've kind of, you know, this is a long one for us, John. Yeah, we're, we're, we're well over an hour ago. But it's always uh, just good to hang out and talk, though. Hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm hey. here all afternoon. I cleared the <laughs> afternoon for this. So, hey, same we, here. We can, do, we can do this for the next, you know, hour as far as I'm, I'm concerned. But let's not do that. Let's, let's let, Let's end with a nice uh, 30 second trial tip. You know, things we do to make our cases stronger and our trials better. Uh, John, what's yours for this week? Uh, good artists borrow, great artists steal. So, a lot of the things that you talked about from your trial are things that I'm going to steal, but in particular, the proximate cause arguments that you talked about. Um, that's, that's gold. And if everybody listening to this does not use that, you're missing an opportunity to score points. That is an awesome tool that I'm going to use in every single trial going forward. And that's the thing that, you know, sort of I was talking about with books and methods is you have to be fearless in your incorporation of other people's methods and other people's successes into your own attempts. And you have to do it in an authentic way. Um, so don't hesitate to steal. If you find something good, steal it, run with it. How about you? All right. So I, I'm moving away from the trial because, you know, how do we settle cases these days from the trials? We mediate. Uh, I had two last week. 
And my takeaway from those two, uh, the, the, the similar, similar circumstances between them, they were both, one was pre-suit, one we just filed suit. So early on in the process, you know, and the important thing that I needed to do and that the mediators helped me with was do the math. Do the math for your clients. Make them understand, you know, to focus on the bottom line of which is what happens after fees, costs, liens, you know, other expenses, what the ultimate benefit is to them, you know, versus, you know, what the top number is. Because, you know, as cases go on, expenses get more, sometimes fees can go up, you know, things that you need to get a much better result at trial to get the same benefit that would you be if you settle for a slightly less today. And you need to do that math for the client. You need to explain it in those terms, you know, in addition to, you know, the weight, who knows when, you know, especially in Cook County, who knows when we're going to be trying cases, you know, explain the benefit, do the math, you know, give them all the options. I mean, that's ultimately our job as counsel is to help them make the best decision possible under the circumstances. And, you know, if you've got a case where the client's going to net the same at, you know, they settle at a hundred thousand today as they would at two fifty, you know, two years from now, you know, you need to be able to do that math for them and explain it to them. So that's, that's what yeah, I ended up doing for both those mediations. They both resolved um, clients, happy clients, you know, happy clients, happy now, I was going to say happy wife, but that we, we got to cut that out. We got to cut that out of the thing. But ultimately, ultimately, you, you do the math, you explain the options, and you give the clients the best information to make the best decision for them. Definitely. And that's our episode for today. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at On Trial Podcast. Please also rate us and leave your feedback on iTunes, wherever you download your podcasts. And until next time, we'll see you on trial.